I just think a lot of people are waking up and it's brilliant mm. now where I, I think in the end, and if you look at our particular government at the moment uh, and the US government before the recent change, you, you, um, you, you see that the only way to change things is if people lead it. We can't, have our, we can't expect our leaders to save us because that's just not going to happen. That was Neil Perry and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day, super excited to bring you a wonderful interview with Neil Perry today. Uh, I've known Neil for a few years now. Um, he, he signed a book for me some years ago. And in the front of it, he said, um, "What was he say? He said, keep, keep the bastards honest, or no, keep it, keep at the bastards.' I think he wrote. Um, lovely fellow. He, we were lucky to have a um, uh, chat here at Rockpool Bar and Grill in Sydney, and Sydney's beat. CBD, can't even talk. I haven't even had a, had a, had a drink yet. Um, and we talked about um, we talked about sort of the the, the impact of COVID. We talked about um, Neil's regenerative journey, which really started um, early in his life, where his um, family were sourcing um, food from nearby, and his father was a butcher. And so, really, he had to, he was getting the good stuff into him from an early early time. We had a couple of Patreon questions too uh, from our Patreon members um, about um, changing uh, trends in in web. Uh, restaurateurs are sourcing food from and also about airline food. Um, ask me about mentoring, uh, latest projects, uh, what he's irate about, what he's excited about. And just before we jump into the interview, I just want to let you know and remind you that we will be, Hamish Mackay and I will be down in South Australia uh, with all those wonderful crow editors down there uh, at Barossa, the Barossa Valley on the 3rd and 4th of May at the Alkina Wine Estate there with Dan and Amelia and all those wonderful people. Um, now, just to make a note of that, we are just talking about how biodynamics applies to wine uh, and and viticulture. It is about horticulture. It's about broad acres. It's about small scale garden. It's whatever you want to, however you want to um, apply biodynamics to your world and your life. So there on the third and fourth of May in the Barossa Valley at the uh, um, Alkina um, Wine Estate, and on the seventh and uh, sorry, 6th and 7th of May, that's the later in that same week at McLaren Vale at Gem Tree Wines there with Melissa and Michael, um, who produce some amazing wines, as does the um, Alkina Estate. So just to reinforce that, you don't have to be a wine grower. You might want to be a grape eater, but not a wine grower or a winemaker to come to these courses down there in South Australia. They are open to everyone, so spread the news far and wide. We'd love to see you there. Uh, tickets available on charliearnett.com.au and I uh, hope everyone enjoys this interview with Neil Perry as much as I do. Neil Perry. Charlie. <laughs> welcome <laughs> welcome to your restaurant, um, Rockpool Bar and Grill. We're sitting up in a... 
Where are we? We're a little one of the private one rooms. One of the private rooms, the Bly Room, with a nice little view over Bly Street. That's uh, that's the name. It's, it's <laughs> the name. I'm sure <laughs> Not this. Not too creative. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that was my next question: is where actually what, what is outside? So you've answered that one, yeah. Neil. Um, I have got you here um, as a guest on the Regenerative Journey. And I'm um, most appreciative of your time as well. You're Pressure. a very busy man and um, I'm going to make sure that you get some value out of this as well as our listeners. And what I do is I I, 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 I want to make sure my my guests are in a place, a happy place, and I suspect that we're in a happy place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're looking at a beautiful uh, Chinese elm out there um, overlooking the CBD of Sydney um, and – can you tell us about Neil? I guess what does Rockpool mean mean to you? What what, what is it? Because I want to try and yeah. set the scene. <clears throat> well, I mean, it, you know, for me, it's the brand that uh, I've had in my life for thirty um, three years now. Uh, moving on from the fine dining Rockpool um, to fifteen years ago Rockpool Bar and Grill in Melbourne, and then um, twelve years ago Rockpool Bar and Grill in Sydney, and then ten years ago Rockpool Bar and Grill in Perth, as well as a few of my other restaurants, but. This, uh, you know, being being the namesake or the continuation of Rockpool, which is a really important pillar in my life and probably the brand that I'm most known for, is uh, something that's really um, close, you know, close to my life. And, and at the moment, um, yeah, love love watching the fire like I was this morning and seeing the boys cut all that beautiful beef and, yeah, it's incredible. Are you here? Are you here? Because being as busy as I think you are, I suspect you are, um, do you... Yeah, you know, how much time do you actually spend? I mean, if not on the pans, yeah. just sort of in in situ in in your you know. Yeah, well, I I you know I'm still a shareholder in the Rockpool Dining Group, but I kind of stepped away. Uh, you know, I sort of re- I'd retired for five minutes, but but yeah. Well, I mean, it was, <laughs> you do no, the Johnny I was seriously Fart. thinking the Johnny of, <laughs> yeah. I was seriously thinking of taking a really nice big break and just mm. focusing on the charity that we we do with Rockpool Foundation, Rockpool Dining Group, and. Quadrant uh, Hope Delivery, which is just about mm. to restart fantastically. Um, and I was really going to take a big break, but but from a day-to-day running, and but what I am is a you know mentor to many of my old team and uh, and I love the restaurants and I'm here all the time and say hi to the customers and make sure that everybody knows that I'm still around and still incredibly supportive of, you know, Rockwell Dining Group and Rockwell Bar and Grill in particular. I think it's really important that the boss, as it were, <clears throat> the principal is seen on the – on you know on site and yeah. it's not just like oh he's the guy that sort of pops in and yells at us and buggers <laughs> off for, you know, for a couple of days yeah yeah no definitely and like, I think that whole uh, culture and and people working together it's important that the, the leadership is, is is part of that Neil I wanted if I may drill down into I mean hence the name of the, of the podcast the regenerative journey I'm I'm looking to understand <laughs> you know. Going back in time to um, you know your earlier years, and I guess I'm looking for some um, points in time potentially without you know mm. putting words in your mouth. There were some sort of either tension events or, or mm. times when you you know had some deep reflection on what you were doing, and then decided to change. Before we get to those points, just give us a bit of a sense of Neil Perry before those points in time. Well, you can go back as, yeah, far, yeah, as yeah. far as you want. Well, I'll go all the way back because uh, <laughs> the reality of it is that, you know, my father taught me pretty much everything I know about um, food without me probably realising at the time. Um, you know, he was a butcher, so we ate great meat, always ate lots of offal. 
and um, he was well. And my three brothers were butchers as well, as well as my uncle. So it was like you know really rooted in the family. But he was a mad keen fisherman. We lived on George's River, so everything that we ate that came from the sea, we'd be in Burrell Lakes in summer. We'd be up at Yamba in winter. Uh, and they were our holidays. And um, so I ate fresh seafood, caught, gutted, scaled on the beach or the, you know, in the, in the, in the lake at Brewer Lakes or George's River. And uh, we, we lived at, at, on Stewart Street and we had a small plot of land. We had an aviary so the chickens laid the eggs and dad would kill a chook every now and again. And, uh, you know, that'd be the roast chook or we'd bring home incredible meat or it'd be fish that we, we caught. But we had a really beautiful little vegetable garden. So, we grew things and we, you know, ate squash and, and zucchinis and tomatoes and eggplant in summer and dug root vegetables in, in autumn and, and, and winter and grew, you know, potatoes out in spring. And and so I didn't realise at the time, but I was completely immersed in seasonality without kind of realising it <clears throat> and also freshness. Uh, and I guess when I started cooking that really reflected on me that that you know that was where I needed to start with the season with the quality of the ingredients with as fresh as I could possibly get and because I'd actually dug fruit and you know for, dug vegetables and picked fruit and scaled fish and and you know cut large pieces of meat with with dad because he'd bring home a whole rump and we'd slice mm-hmm. and put it on the barbecue or whatever it might be then um I felt like that was somewhere where I really needed to go um and have a relationship with suppliers. And when I first started, even before I started cooking actually in the late 70s, 78, um, 79, probably 78 actually, the first sort of serious cookbook I bought was Great Chefs of France and it sort of plotted the 12, I think, chefs uh, of France at the time who lived in the provinces, not in Paris, uh, who were three-star chefs. And, you know, they told the story of each of the chefs and, and, and I suppose the endeavour, the amount of, of energy and, um, and the length of time that you had to put into every day um, from sourcing the amazing ingredients at the local markets through to prepping it and family meal and cooking for the customers and cleaning down and starting it all again for dinner. So that was a really um, pivotal read for me. Um, and I think so you were you, sort of age, <clears throat> what did you give a sense 22, of? 23, something like yeah. that. Uh, well, 21 actually. Uh, and then, and then around the same time, uh, the great Michel Gerard, who was one of the, along with Bacuse and Trugaro and, and Sundaran and those guys, they were Chapal, they were all, all the guys who were cooking, you know, the old cuisine at the time, 80, the late 70s through to the, beginning of the 80s and sort of one by one I sort of got their books and read it and everything that came through those pages was about quality, about seeking out the best, about building relationships with suppliers. Um, and, you know, we say, no, you're, you're a producer now, but that's sort of where I started. So mm-hmm. right back at Barron Joy House in 1983 when I took over the reins as the chef there or at the end of 82 actually, um, you know, I made sure I put on the menu the suppliers that we had relationships with and that was the first time that I started doing that. And Is that the I, first time that I think someone really, did it in Australia, really, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we used to have local fishermen bringing 
15, 18 kilo jewfish in the back door and beautiful squid and live prawns and stuff that we uh, we were using locally, which was which was fantastic. And bit by bit, as as you know, John Sussman and I sort of got involved in Blue Water Grill and and mm. then started getting direct off fishermen uh, large volumes of seafood from around Australia, South Australia, Tassie, Victoria, and then he started flying Squid Brothers when I started Rockpool. Uh, on George, um, down, down in 1989. And, uh, he said to me, Hey, I'll start a seafood business if you'll buy off me. So that sort of started a great relationship. And then <laughs> who got the better deal? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sussman, what do you say? And then, uh, we did things like, you know, Tony Lehman was my brother-in-law at the time or cousin of my, my, my first wife. And he was a farmer and we got hold of, you know, I'd, I'd said to him, you know, I really lament the fact that when I go to France and eat these amazing milk-fed lambs. You know, it's uh, it's mind-blowing. Um, just like when you eat an incredible, like first breast chicken you have, and you go, okay, now I know why I'd pay as much for chicken as I do for you know, mm. a beautiful piece of beef, whatever it might be. So um, you know, we did Ilibo lamb, and then we started working with a whole lot of other um, producers and suppliers. And now it's amazing the amount of things that you can uh, get here and the relationship you can develop. Um, mm like here at Barn Grill, with all the fishermen that we work with directly and all the uh, cattle growers that we work with, you know, direct, directly. So um, it's it's great because if you've got an open relationship, uh, you can pass comment backwards and forwards and you're a conduit between the producer and the customer. And I think it's great for the producers because they get to understand, you know, how prized their, their ingredients are and how well looked after they are by by the chef. I mean, you know, we, we have on the menu... Um, you know, the cornerstone of good cooking is to source the finest ingredients. Um, Richard, uh, who was my chef at, at, uh, at, at Rosetta up until just recently, um, put it even more simply, you know, about, about Italian cooking, good, good Italian cooking is good shopping. And, and the reality, that's just a fancy way, an easy way of saying what I said before, but, <laughs> but the reality of it is that, you know, the best dish starts with the best ingredients mm. and you can't, you know, you can't get around that. Um, not if not if you want to taste the, the the nature within the product. We were in Italy a couple of years ago for a couple of months, um, Neil and our Angelica, my wife, being Italian, a half Italian. You know, I wanted to go back, and that was certainly the um, the message, not just the message, but the impression, and and that's what we saw was the most simple food with the mm-hmm. finest ingredients done well and simply, and, yeah. and, and often quickly. Yes, just. You know, well, that's it was all we all needed. Yeah, and I mean, you go go to Italy and you walk into one of those vegetable shops, fruit and veg shops. There blows your mind. You know the quality of the product, um, and you sometimes lament that you can't you can't get things like that that, that here on a on mm. a sort of scale that you do there. That's just every fruit and veg shop, right? It's like that. It's normal there, isn't it? <clears throat> it's normal, yeah. But we're getting better and better at that. And when I when I think about you know in 1982 or 83, if we forgot to order something off the our fruit and vegetable supplier, we ran down to the local fruit shop, fruit and veg shop to, to get an interesting lettuce or something. I mean, forget it. You know, it was Mignonette, it was Mignonette and, and, iceberg. and, and Iceberg and and that was it. <laughs> you know, now you've got 20 different types of rocket and, you know, you, <laughs> you, 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 you name it. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it is amazing. So we have come a long way and, and certainly I think um, – Small farmers who care have, have, have learnt to be able to market the difference in their product uh, and, you know, do what you do, which is look after the earth. I mean, it's a pretty simple idea, but if we look after the earth and we look after the sea, 
pretty much going to look after the planet. But mm. um, there's a lot of people who don't seem to understand the how, how simple and and you know they go how do you how do you feed the world? Well, you don't feed it by industrial farming. You know, you you feed it by getting the most out of out of the earth and as you know, having biodiversity and quality within the earth that you grow, grow the products in and then they're better for you as well. Well, as Charlie Massey says, um, and, and he quotes it, that, that 70% of the, wor- the world is fed from farms five acres or less. <coughs> yeah. And, and then 80% is 10 acres and less. Yeah. We, can, we, we can actually do this. Yeah, yeah. We don't have to lay the earth bare all the time. Mm. We don't have to rape the sea. Um, you know, there's some really interesting things happening, but the great thing about it is with like with this podcast and obviously with the advent of things like Netflix and so forth that aren't commercial TV so that you can get uh, things that make statements and, and, and you know, don't have to be the most popular but can be seeked out by people who really care about things. So, you know, there's a lot of really great documentaries on food and the environment and the sea and, and, um, and you, I just think a lot of people are waking up and it's brilliant mm-hmm. now where, I think in the end, and if you look at our particular government at the moment uh, and the US government before the recent change, you you, um, you you see that the only way to change things is if people lead it. We can't have our, we can't expect our leaders to save us because that's just not going to happen. Now, have you already read my questions? Because you're pretty much answering them all. No, no. <laughs> Did Gene send you a? No, no, so I'm going to get a copy no, of my question. No, 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 no. It's a classic. You, you're making – well, I'm, in some ways you make my job easy, a bit harder. Um, Neil, were there, were there points in so, – so what I'm getting is that, that normal for you was growing your own food, you know, meat, fresh meat was coming in through yeah, the door, yeah. seafood was, was at hand. Yeah. So, you, I mean, I guess in some ways your regenerative journey or a sense of or a con- connection with your food and its source was from – Day one, uh, yeah, on. and very unusual. In if you think back, and you know, I was born in fifty seven. So if you think from there through to through to the seventies, you yeah. know, you You're know, not. sorry, really, yeah. If you look from, if <laughs> see, you look, that's, see, that's what good food does. If you look from there, exactly, <laughs> and wine, and if you look from there through to the seventies, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people in Australia weren't eating like that. I mean, you know, we we, we had what call the new Australians, of course, back in the day, and they were Greek and Italians and a few select Europeans. You've got uh, 1972 and, and Whitlam comes to power, white Australia policy, Vietnam War over, a lot of Southeast Asian people coming to Australia, Middle Eastern um, people who uh, bring culture and really interesting things and interesting food stuff. And, and you see an explosion in biodiversity of, of, of or sorry, not, but diversity of, mm. of the sorts of cuisines and food and the ethnic places that you can eat at in Australia. And in a very short period of time, you know, we've taken on an amazing um, food journey. And then in the last, you know, 10 years, what's been brilliant is the recognition that we also have some amazing native ingredients mm. that are incredible. First, Australians are part of our, and must be part of our story because that's what makes us unique and interesting. Uh, and they're incredible people. Um, and they've been managing, uh, you know, water, sh- water shortage and fire in this country for 60,000 years. Um, and, and so, You've got an incredibly, you know, multi-layered um, flavor pot mm. in this country, which is almost unique to anywhere in the world. And there are other multicultural countries, but I think because of the way that we grow and the attitudes that we have, and then uh, you know, layering our first strains over the top of it, and our incredible seafood, and 
our ability to grow from warm climate to cold climate. You 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 just have such an uh, an amazing wealth mm. of of things to work with. So why wouldn't you be inspired by a Thai ingredient or an English ingredient or a local ingredient or an Indigenous ingredient, you know, whatever it might be? So here in Australia, I think we do things very differently because we're part of Asia, we really are. Mm. We're so influenced by it. We've travelled to it as young Australians a lot. Um, many Asian people of, or of Asian descent call themselves and they are Australian here and we've got this kind of rich culture that, that's interwoven with Asia. And so I think if you look at all the countries around the world that, that people pick up, Western or white people pick up Asian ingredients and cook with them, very few manage, I think, to to make it as comfortable and as authentic as we do here in Australia. I think that's a really unique part of what we, we do here. We're spoiled, aren't we? <coughs> Just sure. with ingredients and with climate and the yeah, access yeah. and I guess given where the multicultural nature of where we're really open to all sorts of different food. Having said that, as a country boy... Going to the Imperial Peking Chinese <laughs> yes. down at the rocks. Oh, back in the, back day. In the day, that was a treat. Yeah, it was like, mermaid oh, tresses. <laughs> that was one of the specialties. I Lemon chicken, yeah. um, and Mongolian lamb. Mongolian lamb. Well, they're all the classics that are still available in uh, <laughs> is it, the is local Chinese in wherever. Sorry, is Imperial Peking still around? No, it's not, not. No, it was. It wasn't there for a long time, but they just. I think about three years ago or two years ago, redeveloped the walls. So, uh, yeah. but that was there for a long time, and there, and there was an imperial picking in Double Bay as well, which no longer exists, sadly. That's right. Yeah. It was underneath, yeah. just opposite the oak there, yeah, or somewhere there, wasn't it? Somewhere around there, yeah. just on the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, so was there? W- were there some moments in your, you know, again your your journey, you know, your development, your career, where? Um, from a was it was it like a food sourcing or just a you know upon reflection you know some moments that were really that were pivotal were turning point or you learned a lot from an event or something that I guess I'm trying to get a sense of you know lessons that you've learned yeah. that you can pass on to our listeners. Well, I think it's being true true or questioning what what's 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 your truth or what's true to you. So I mean, I remember in 1984 I'd been at J House for year and a half and been cooking. You know, I'd, I'd worked with Stephanie and Damien and Pignolet and Gabe Olson and Jenny Ferguson, me and you, and who was an amazing cook in King Street. I don't know if you ever remember that restaurant went there, but it's amazing. And uh, so I kind of worked with all those guys and worked at the Bayswater Brasserie and then I got mm. a job at Baron Joey. But, I, you know, I was in Palm Beach and I was essentially cooking, you know, provincial French food, I suppose, with a bit of Italian over, over, overtone or whatever it might have been. But I, I went to France and, and ate in all these amazing three-star restaurants and Freddy Girardet's in Switzerland and sort of uh, 21 days, 18, 16 three-star restaurants. It was incredible, actually. I think I put on about stone and a half back in those days. <laughs> worth every Ten kilos. pound. <clears throat> yeah, it was worth every pound. I spent a <laughs> lot of money. But uh, I came back and thought, wow, you know, that's incredible food, incredible incredible French cooking. But they're cooking it in France and sort of what am I doing at Baron Joey House cooking essentially French food at this amazing location in Sydney. So um, I'd always loved Asian cooking, Chinese. My father had me very sort of switched into that and and I love, you know, I've been reading a lot about Moroccan food and playing around with that as well. And so I really kind of thought to myself, why aren't I cooking the food that I love and also some of the other cultural influences that I see here in Australia in my in my country. And so that's when I decided in 84 that I would, you know, start to 
cook my own food, really. Um, not not renditions of dishes mm. that, that, that I'd seen in cookbooks or cooked with people or what have you. So that was kind of the starting of the, you know, the, the real Neil Perry journey, I suppose, right through Blue Water Grill and then to Rockpool, um, where we were sort of very creative and doing different things. And, and then, um, you know, it was always Blue Water Grill was an amazing seafood restaurant as my father was a butcher. It was always in my mind to have a steakhouse. And um, so when the opportunity arose to create Rockpool Bar and Grill, I kind of, you know, jumped in with with uh, hands wide open and mm. um, it was a really fantastic, you know, kind of part of my career. And uh, I sort of see now going down to Double Bay and opening this new restaurant where mm. for the first time ever I'm going to own it 100% and... And uh, I kind of see that it's got a name, yeah. Uh, it's a bit secret squirrel. It's a bit of a secret squirrel on <laughs> that. Right? <laughs> tell you off, off, uh, <laughs> off camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you off camera. I can't. It's about about the end of April. I'll yeah, okay. So, so um, I see that as the next kind of you know defining focus of my career mm. because I want to really create a kind of world class neighbourhood restaurant, the sort of place that everybody wants to be and hang out and use for different things and. And, you know, it feels like they should take the family there for a birthday or should dive in and have a glass of wine and a burger, you know, mm. or just have some oysters and a glass of Chablis, whatever it might be. Are you looking for more information to assist you on your regenerative journey? We've created an online community of supporters with exclusive access to interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions with Charlie and his interviewees, as well as the opportunity to be interviewed on the show yourself. If you would like to be part of this community or would simply like to contribute to the development of the podcast series, please make your way to patreon.com forward slash the regenerative journey podcast. We look forward to you becoming a member of the regenerative journey community. Let's get back to this week's episode. Neil, I want to just divert off there for a little bit. I want to sort of go a bit higher level. What What do you think, what would you say your genius is? Uh, I think probably getting the best out of other people. Um, mm. You know, I've never thought of myself as the world's greatest cook or uh, restaurateur or whatever it might be, but I think I'm really good at actually getting people together, leading them in a direction and, and getting the best out of them along with, with you know, myself. So I, I guess never being, you know, never having the ego where you or, 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 the, or you know, where you're insecure about, about having people that seem to have more talent or are smarter or uh, have a skill that you don't have, but getting the best out of them. And I think that and probably, you know, moving forward all the time, recognising that I can't really control anything except for what's within my sphere. Mm. So, you know, making sure that I keep all of that under control and, and, then, and then I'm in a better position to when things are coming at me, you know, I'm in calmer, better, more relaxed um, more focused on what we're doing. I've got the troops going forward. We're doing the best we possibly can every day. We're doing better tomorrow. Things come at us, you know, we can deal with it. Mm. Um, we're not we're not worried about what other people think. We're not worried about what's going to happen. You know, we love a great review or we love something that, that's really fantastic, but that's not what our focus is. Our focus is doing the best that we can. And then, and then when these outside influences happen, then you just have to take it for what it is, good or bad, and, and, and then just got to move on and marshal the troops and, and get the best out of them. So I, I think actually leading people and getting the best out of them would probably be, you know, I think my strong suit. It's a bit like, <clears throat> in some ways, 
farming or regenerative farming where we, we try and focus on what we're in control of. Yeah. And like the weather. Can't do Carol, much. Can't do <laughs> <much>. <laughs> Pray. Having, well, that's true. Go to church more. Um, but having said that, though, the um, being prepared for the rain when it comes. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. just sort of having the ground cover as an example and making sure, well, I can't make it rain, but when it does rain, I want to make sure it. I capture uh, as much as that, uh, of that as I can. Um, I've got so many questions, but I'm going to have to cull them. Actually, you have answered quite a few. Um, what are you... What do you irate about at the moment? Is there anything that sort of gets up your goat? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think one of the things that I really disappointed most in is, is how we started down a great path of reconciliation and it seemed to have gone off the boil mm. a little bit. I, I, I must say that when Morrison jumped out and said after Gladys, and I've been saying it on Instagram for a while, you know, the simple changing of, of the word one, uh, as opposed to free in the national anthem, <clears throat> when you get up there and listen to the All Blacks, um, you know, sing sing the national anthem. Half it's in Maori, and then they do the mm. Haka, and then you know we are we are young and free to a country that's got sixty thousand years of continual culture. It's a bit bit rich. Bit so rich. I, I was kind of <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a bit remiss. I mean, I think we have to rewrite history, right? Because we know enough of it now to to be inclusive, and we have to be inclusive to take the next step in the journey. So that that gets might go a bit and then i think the other uh the other thing is really making sure that we focus on the environment i mean i know we've had to listen to the science which has been brilliant and all of our politicians have said listen to the science on covid um and we've got to where we are by listening to the science and by by focusing on that and everyone's done an amazing job in australia of respecting um you know each other the fellow fellow human being but, but I do think when we say listen to the science on climate change and for some reason we're able to ignore that science, um, just seems to me that if you can stand up there and tell everybody that they've got to go into lockdown for two, two months mm. because of the science and then you can say, oh, well, you know, coal could be the answer, you know, gas-led recovery, you know, you kind of, you kind of wonder where what's got to happen um, to make people realise that climate change is real and that the reality of it is, I mean, even if the, the you know, the guys who have got the negative view were right, I mean, what's wrong with having a cleaner planet? It would be just like <laughs> saying, oh, don't clean up your bedroom, kids, or don't fix the house yeah. up, or don't, you know, I mean, it's, why would you want the seas to be polluted with plastics? Why would you want to pollute the earth, um, CO2s and... Why would you want to chop down the Amazon or burn it? Um, you know, the irresponsibility just seems ridiculous. I think, Neil, it was actually your Instagram feed where I saw you re- um, replayed the national anthem at the rugby game. Yeah, yeah. That was, and, which I, I was blown away. I missed the game, missed so many games. Yeah. On the television, don't watch much, but um, that was – thank you for posting that because I, would, I totally would have missed that. Yeah, well, you know, I was just blown away by it. I mean, the beautiful young girl singing was fa- mm. fabulous, but I think, you know, to the point that we recognise that that Australia has such a rich, you know, mm. history uh, and, and culture and the more that we push towards that, the more the un- understanding is that we're all one people here and we've got to get on with it um, – I think that's that's for sure for me is is you know in my lifetime I'll be so proud of seeing cha- a lot of change 
um, you know, if I kick on for a few more years, mm-hmm. hopefully, because I think in the next 20 years there's going to be some serious rewriting of uh, or the writing of history. Um, and when you think about it, um, you know, hopefully the right thing's being taught in school and, and, and also, you know, hopefully... And it's interesting, actually, because I think um, we have uh, quite a few young Indigenous kids from the, the National Indigenous Culinary um, Institute who've been fantastic cooking with us and, mm. and uh, you know, working with their native ingredients and going out and, and, and seeing some of the, the, the picking and harvesting and, and whatever. And, and I think a lot of um, reconciliation can start to happen through food because it starts to show that we do have great respect and, we understand what it is to be Australian, how unique mm. um, this this country is, because it is incredibly unique. So, you know, let's celebrate that. It's a it's a wonderful, um, you know, from an indigenous and a sort of a you know Anglo sort of point of view, or you know, um, different district point of view, different regions of Australia or the world. You know, food again is that central. As I say, when I talk yeah, things, yeah. you know, put your hand up if you eat food. Yeah. <laughs> Not many don't. You know, it's like it's the thing that is and quite a lot common. care about. I mean, there are a few who could just eat cornflakes every yeah. day, but 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 I mean, you know, the vast the, the reality of is, you know, you frame it's an important part of framing culture and country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for for us to bring it the uniqueness out that we have in our in our food is is fabulous. But I think also importantly to celebrate the different cultures that we have mm. in Australia. You know, we have incredible uh, ethnic restaurants that we can go to where we can taste uh, beautiful um, food that that represents people who are part of this, you know, the Australian fabric. Mm. I mean, you know, we're, 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 we're one people in this planet. You know, it's just crazy that we just have so many arguments about religion, colour, sex, gender, um, sorry, gender, um, uh, sexuality, mm. um, you know, it was just so frustrating. Thank, thank God Malcolm managed to get the plenocyte up and going for same-sex marriage. Mm. It was very clear that the overwhelming majority of Australians want everybody to be able to, you know, marry Make and find it, love yeah. um, mm. and, and be a couple and, you know, why would you s- cut out a vast m- amount of people out of, out of society out of that? But it just... We seem to have this way of, of going to war on each other as humans, which I just flabbergasted at. You know, it's kind of if you if you if you take you know Islam and Judaism and Christianity. I mean, half the people who don't even realise it's just the one God we're talking about. You know, it's, it's, it's the same. It's the same. <laughs> it's, it's the same woman. <laughs> it's it's just it's just frightening. But anyway, I mean, hopefully. You'd hope that things can change, but I'm not overly optimistic that we yeah. can stop trying to hurt each other. <clears throat> what are you, just let's raise the tone. Um, what are you excited about? Is it is it, is it something to do with the um, hope delivery? Yeah, really excited about hope <laughs> delivery at the <laughs> you moment might have another uh, one, obviously, because too. we've got you know five thousand um, people that we're going to be able to feed a week in mm. about four weeks. So we're super excited about that. We know vulnerability in Australia has increased through COVID. It hasn't gone, you know, backwards. It hasn't gone forwards, gone backwards. So, so we know that more people are dropping below the poverty line. We know that more people are struggling, making a decision like, can I afford to eat today? Or do I leave my house and become homeless? Or, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that we know that we can support through Hope Delivery. And that's a wonderful experience. And I know through COVID, I, look, looking at the experience of, of, say, Melbourne, where we were in hard lockdown for, 
four and a half months after we came out of lockdown in, in Sydney, that my guys really, their mental health was fantastic because they got to come to work anywhere between four and two days a week, cook food or pack food and actually hand out food Riverside to a 1,000 people mm. a day. Mm. It, it, that was such a part of a community. It was such a strong kind of um, focus for those guys that it really helped them through what a lot of people in Melbourne struggled with, um, which was the mental health issue that, that, that COVID created um, outside of the... You know the physical issues that uh, that we had with with the disease itself. So, just for those who don't know, just explain what hope delivery is that 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 giving of. Yeah, of, well, it, you know, know I mean, it was really um, just G basically saying, "Hey, chef, you've got the ability to do something about this because there's a lot of visa holders, a lot of people who don't have a safety net from the government, and stop talking about it on Instagram and actually do something." And well, we had a kitchens. All my staff are going, mm. Chef, what, what's going on? Mm. Like anything we can do to help. And interestingly, uh, because Trish and I have been also always very community-minded, we had our own foundation, the Rockpool Foundation, which was ordered by KPMG for the last seven years. So when we said to people, you can donate, it's tax deductible, this is what we're hoping to achieve, um, it was fantastic. Everybody jumped on board. So mm. we raised about $400,000 in about three weeks. That's Got about serving three hundred thousand um, meals in nine months. It's incredible, mm. and I guess I guess the you know the farmers didn't stop growing food. No, we know, were able to support mm. producers, which mm. was fantastic, mm. and we were able to um, small small uh, suppliers who were kind of caught in the middle of you know restaurants owing them money and them wanting to pay their producers, and we, we all of a sudden were buying ten thousand dollars a week worth of food. Mm. And uh, it, it it worked well for those guys, which was fantastic. If only we could solve the <coughs> excuse me the current problem of um, you know fruit and vegetables not being able to be kicked because we just don't have the the, the um, uh, employees and the yeah, backpackers. Yeah. And well, not. Charlie, the, the 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 interesting thing is, I mean, the only thing that concerns me about opening a new restaurant is staff. Now, when you've mm. got you know x amount of unemployed in Australia, you would suspect that wouldn't be a ca- the case. But in hospitality, without without all the skills visas that, that have had to go home because they couldn't survive without a safety net, uh, with the travellers who've all had to go home uh, because, again, they had no safety net, and with diminishing students who used to work 20 hours a week in the restaurant industry or hospitality industry, uh, you know, we're in serious trouble. So the thing that's going to impact the ability for the restaurant industry to come back to full strength is, is a staff one. So we really need the government to understand that we've got to get the right the right balance um, between bringing people in to pick fruit, dig vegetables, uh, do the sorts of things that in agriculture is desperately needed. Mm. And as you say, like I feel sorry for you guys because you had some rain this year and it's decent rain too. So you're growing <laughs> that feels probably sorry had the <laughs> probably had the best <laughs> probably is. had the best year. It is. Uh, it is. And, and and you say so you have a great year mm. and then you can't fully monetize it, which mm. you know it seems seems a tragedy. So. We do need to get back to some kind of what does COVID normal look like afterwards and how do we get people travelling again. And, look, I'm very optimistic that with the vaccine and with the way, particularly with the way looking at the, the numbers in the UK and America and Israel where they're rolling out substantial vaccination, it, the vaccination does seem to be making uh, it more like the flu rather than hospitalisation and potential death. Um, a bad cold and you can get over it or immunity. 
and the numbers are dropping quite substantially at the moment. So there's some encouragement. And I was talking to um, Lyndon Pride, who owns a Dante Bar in uh, New York. He works for me, and I just give him a call from time to time and see how he's going because it's been pretty dire for those guys mm-hmm. for a big chunk of time. And they're back to 35% open, and they're going to actually be a lot more than that by spring. Uh, into inside dining, and um, he's saying that in America they're saying round about July, uh, which isn't that far off now mm. when you think about it. Round about July, um, they think they'll have herd immunity to the point where you know life can return to fairly normal. So, so, so opening, <clears throat> you know, not not the numbers restrictions. What no, yeah, not the number of restrictions. So we're very lucky here in Australia. Like, have you two, got restrictions? Well, we're at two square meters, but that pretty much. Um, helps most restaurants, in particular the smaller ones. I, I felt very sorry for those guys uh, during the four square metre rule, which had to happen, of course. Um, we completely understand what everything was going on. But, you know, the and the other great thing, of course, now is with the vaccine going into quarantine workers, you would hope leakage is zero or almost minimal. And I think for the, you know, 50,000 people who have to come back, to put 50,000 vaccines towards them, you know, you should be going to Australia House in London or in New York to wherever you've got to go to to get a vaccination and then COVID test two weeks later and then, you know, come back, come back to Australia. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think if we do that and then hopefully everybody who comes in is vaccinated after that when we start to open bubbles and borders. And But um, I think, you know, considering where I thought we were, you know, May last year um, to where we are now. <clears throat> Big turnaround. Big turn Positive. Um, Neil, we have a little, um, well, it's getting bigger, group of um, members, Patreon members, Patreon being a sort of a platform where people can subscribe and they help sort of like we have webinars every month yeah. with some of our interviewees and they get transcripts of the interviews and so on. And we put to them this morning, was it last minute, um, any questions that they might have for Neil Perry. And two popped up. Yeah. Uh, well, two that I was... I was <laughs> I was happy, happy to, to, <laughs> to share. <laughs> One relates to, um, oh, I've said, might have to read seeing, uh, are you seeing a shift away from, uh, restaurateurs sourcing food from overseas? And is there a shift more towards, um, you know, sourcing good organic or, or regeneratively grown, uh, produce from, yeah. from Australia? And so, and, and if so, where do you, why do you think that trend is? Is that a customer led? Trend is that restaurateurs going? Actually, we got it all here anyway. What's the? Yeah, look, I think it's definitely happening. It's certainly happening in the best restaurants. You know, we we really push to get a greatest. You know, because we produce great Australian olive oils now, and mm. you know, great vinegars and things that we might have bought from overseas. And uh, you know, people are growing lentils now and farro and all the sorts of things we might have bought from Italy and, and different places. And we're wanting to mill Australian flowers for our for our pastas and our breads and things and. And uh, we're focusing on Australian wine. I mean, sure, we're going to be selling imported wines, but but we're really focusing. And I had a big campaign through my Instagram about drink Australian and and uh, support the Australian industry because it's been through you know fire and and mm-hmm. you know uh, well it went through a fire flood and and then and then obviously COVID and and uh, you know now China and 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 so forth. So all of these industries within Australia, I think I think the pandemic made us realise that you know we have a certain responsibility to support our own country and our own producers. And, 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 and very interestingly, I think, you know, manufacturing and, and, um, pharmaceuticals and, and IT and all, all the sorts of things that we generally have in spades. I mean, most of the really great ideas 
um, you know, in universities and different things end up, uh, researchers end up going overseas to... <laughs> get the money. Yeah, to get yeah. the money to, 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 to formalise the idea they had in Australia. And I think what COVID's made uh, possible is, you know, the government funding and the different fundings that are available is to um, recognise that we, we have this wonderful treasure here in this country of intellect and and uh, we want to hold on to it and we want to hold on to manufacturing and we want to be able to make face masks here and great to see the fact that we'll be making our, our, you know, our own vaccines and, and so forth and, and importantly a focus towards Australian wine and Australian producers and, and, and making sure that we're using Australian salt and, you know, all the sorts of things that, uh, you know, again, help the, help the, the, the producers um, thrive and, and get through mm. uh, all the various things that they, they have to get through because you're right, you can't, you know, dial the weather in and out and I often wonder why anyone would be a farmer. But <laughs> That was my other question. I was going to say, when are you going to buy a farm? Yeah, no, mate, no, no, no. Matt, leave that to Come Matt Moran. On. He keeps all those little piggies are running around and all he sees is money. <laughs> Um, actually, I texted him this afternoon and I said, have you got any questions for Neil? I don't think he got back to me. He no, might have, yeah, he's busy, mate, busy. He is a busy bloke. Um, I'm looking at the time too, Neil. You're a busy no bloke. A um, couple, <laughs> couple of basic ones. I asked Matt this um, the other day. What's cooking with oil? What's the best oil to cook with? Cook with? Well, I just cook usually either if I'm cooking Asian food, I'll cook with uh, vegetable oil or peanut oil. Mm. And if I'm cooking Western food, I'll pretty much always cook with uh, olive oil. You will. And finish with, with extra yeah. virgin olive oil. Okay. So I just love the flavour of it. And people will often – and I'll have often cook a sauce or something with extra virgin olive oil and people say, oh, isn't that a bit wasteful? I, I honestly believe everything tastes better in the end. You know, it's sort of like if you use a decent glass of wine, I mean, you don't have to go crazy, but if you use a decent glass of wine and reduce it down to make a red wine sauce, if the wine tastes great, start with the sauce, pretty much tastes great. Um, if you use a terrible cooking wine, nothing's going to save it, right? So, yeah. That's a bit of a rule of thumb, isn't it? If you're going to serve wine at dinner or, you, or, or, the, or, the, or the dish yeah. requires wine, it's appropriate that it goes in the dish, goes on the table. That's it, absolutely. Same thing. One last question. Um, tell me about copper pots because yeah. my, my wife's nuts for them. Yeah, I love them. And I want to know because they're as dear as poison, Yeah. but I want to know are they worth the, the – like are they just the best to cook on? Oh, they're beautiful not? to yeah. cook on. Um, so obviously they're rendered useless by induction if you're using induction, but um, they're really beautiful to cook with. So I used to have a lot of them. So I, when I was going to France from 1984 and pretty much from 1984 to 1986, I probably went every year to France, sometimes a couple of times and I ate in all the brilliant restaurants. I was lucky enough to eat at Robichon in 84 and in 96 when he, when he, when he closed. But, mm-hmm. um, I would go to what would, you know, be the chef's warehouse, um, in Mamont in, in, um, in Paris and I'd always buy two or three pans and bring them back. So I had a massive collection at, uh, down at Rockpool where I would have had, you know, 20 saute pans of all different sizes and all copper souffle pans and beautiful little sauce boats and all that sort of thing. But to cook out of, yeah, the evenness of the heat is absolutely fantastic. So to do one of the classic French dishes like a saute of chicken, mm. for instance, it, you just can't beat it. So when my wife turns up and says, I've just spent 300 bucks on a little copper pot, I, I won't crack the shit. <laughs> it does hurt, doesn't it? <laughs> but I will appreciate yeah, yeah. what comes out of it. Oh, yeah, funny. that's amazing. Um, 
new projects now. Yeah, new projects, restaurant um, down in Double Bay, a couple mm. of other things over time down there. Um, getting our, sinking our teeth back into Qantas as we get back more domestic flying now with the borders down mm. um, and we're viewing first hub flying, I would say, um, bubble flying and then and then a return, um, you know, hopefully next year too. But what's bubble flying? Well, you know, I think New Zealand will open up first. Oh, okay, like just Sing- Singapore. Singapore's yeah. already a green zone that way but not back. So mm. um, Thailand seems to be under control, Vietnam, Taipei, Hong Kong to a certain extent getting better and better China's in pretty good shape um, so we'll see that and then looks like the states might come good slightly quicker than Europe and then Europe so you know over a period of time we'll see that so Qantas is on the on the boil hope delivery yeah we want to cement that and make sure that that's on the radar um, for even a day mm. my new cookbook comes out in yeah, October so cool. I just finished shooting we're kind of doing pages soon we're doing that last tidy up of the edit <clears throat> which has been not ongoing, um, and it'll be good, good to get that out of my life. And then we start, <laughs> then, then we start, <laughs> then we start flogging it. Of course, yeah, um, sure. so that'll be out in October, and we're super excited. Talking about airlines, um, Neil, we had a question about airline food. Yeah, <laughs> can we go there? Um, yeah, sure. and it's a quick one. Why can't we have real food on flights instead of the shitstorm of? Of chemicals. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, when we're in full flight at Qantas, I think our premium. I think they're probably talking about fantastic, the more the, you but know, economy, you know, steerage. can be can be difficult, mm. and, and it and it's you know really all about costs. Um, yeah. I think the economy product in Qantas is pretty good internationally. Uh, of course, domestic. You know, I mean, it's interesting as Australians, we have a, a view of what we should get on planes, but you know, you jump on a flight in Europe or in America and. It's like jumping on a bus. I mean, you get nothing. Um, so I would say some of our domestic flying is some of the best, um, you know, stuff in the in, in the, the world, really, because we do get things. And our, I think, our, you know, the majority of our terminals are something to be proud of. And um, I think we, you know, totally. we take for granted infrastructure in this country. We have some, you know, when you think about the size of Australia, which is the, roughly the same size as the as the United States of America, the, you know, without mm. all the bits. Um, and you think about 300 million odd people and, and then you think about our little 25 million in this vast country, you know, the quality of the flying and the quality of the infrastructure and the quality of our roads. And, you know, I often travel and I, you know, think America's kind of falling apart. I love America, mm. but, you know, you go for a drive on some of the infrastructure, the bridges and the roads, you kind of think, whoa, gee, they haven't been fixed since Roosevelt put them in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we are, again, we're lucky, the food and the infrastructure. And just talking about the, the, the terminals, um, I was blown away a couple of years ago walking into, <laughs> must have been the Qantas um, thing at Sydney there, Wolfgang Puck restaurant yeah, there. Because yeah, yeah. years ago, Ange and I went to, uh, in LA, one of his restaurants there, and yeah. was horrified when we said, have you got any grass-fed? And he goes, no, sir, but we've got this big tray of grain-fed yeah, stuff. Oh, that would have been cut or one of those. Oh, yeah, it was. It was cut. Yeah, well done. We stole we stole a spoon. Oh, really? <coughs> well, you <laughs> can't <laughs> tell that. It's okay. You've probably got a few towels from all the hotels. Is that right? <laughs> I haven't got any rock pool spoons yet, though. Not yet. Um, what else, Neil? Oh, a couple more, just very quick ones. If, if there was a, a message, a sign... Phil, there's a message or a phrase or a quote or a question you you could put on a billboard just next to the Harbour Bridge there, what would it be that everyone could see? 
yeah, I think I, I think I'd say as Australians we are all one. You know, I, I think I really love to see a small country like this be able to lead the world on climate change, be able to lead the world on on you know cultural diversity, and and most importantly on showing how well we can love each other and 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 you know be one voice and one opinion i mean you know having many different opinions but but the reality is really understand the fact that we're 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 all the same but we mm. we, we are different and celebrate those differences you don't have to be frightened of difference you don't have to be frightened of religion or gender or sexuality or color or you know we we really are underneath we're all one one, mm. one people and i and i would think that just like I'd love for us to lead the world in climate change rather than say, oh, we, we can't make an impact. I think we could, we could lead the world on so many things because we are a small, beautiful country that has so many positive things about it. Um, I mean, when you think about all the countries in the world that you could be born into, uh, I can't think of one that I'd rather be than here in Australia. So how would you say that we are the same? Is that it? Yeah, we are the same. <clears throat> we are one. It's we are one. Just, yeah. It's just, you know, it's it's... Colour is skin deep. I mean, all those sorts mm. of things are not cliches. It's a reality. Totally. We, we need to uh, understand our diversities and our differences and, mm. and, and get along, and there's really no reason why we have to be frightened of each other. Neil, um, I don't think anyone's going to be frightened of you after that. Um, and can I just thank you so much for your time, not just your time now in the last 48 minutes, but your time that you put into creating wonderful cookbooks um, the Hope Delivery Initiative, the the you know the inspiration you give, um, not just your people who eat your food, but the, yeah. the people you've been mentoring oh, all, over you. over many many years, because you're really um, I, I, you know again um, I, I am pumping up your tyres, I know, but I want <laughs> to because I think it's it's, it's absolutely um, um, uh, you know I'd like to because. Um, you know, you're leading the way in so many different areas in, in, in the, in the, in the food industry in Australia and to get through COVID and to be still, you know, mentoring and serving up good food and, and, and helping the less fortunate people yeah, as well, which you, is, which is you. not a lot of people do that. I'm not, I mean, maybe they should do more of that. You didn't have to do that. No. Well, thank you. I mean, we, we, we always feel community comes first. I mean, you know, they've been so fantastic to us we, and, and myself. And I just feel that, like, you know, you've got to give back. Well, thank you for giving today, um, Neil. We will um, be very excited to, to put this out on the airwaves on the regenerative journey. Um, and just one quick one, I'll probably mention in the intro, we have the aircon in the back. Yeah, and, right. And <laughs> so, so if you if it's a bit hard to hear, you'll you'll get you'll you'll hit well, Reese, my production man, he'll he'll sort something. He'll tidy it up. There. But we, we, we couldn't turn the whole restaurant <laughs> off just for the. Come on, you're the boss. <laughs> Not with a wood fire grill going. <laughs> um, Neil, thank you again, and Pleasure, um, look forward to seeing you. And, and, Thanks, the, and the release of the book. And yeah, yeah, the, book and, and the opening of the restaurant. You bet. See Beautiful. You soon, mate. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. Well, there you go, Neil Perry. Uh, delightful chat there with him at Rockpool. Uh, very generous with his time, and very generous in his mentoring of many other chefs. That I that I um, I know he's you know he's quite the figurehead in in the industry, and rightfully so because he has been such an inspiration and a, and a, a cornerstone of Australian cuisine for many years now. Um, talking about cornerstones, that's a good segue, isn't it? Next week's. Uh, interview is with Aaron McKenzie. He is the uh, he's the creator of Origins of Energy. He owns a sort of a small gym. Um, he is 
that's one of the many things he does. He's all about health, fitness, and well-being, spiritual and physical. Um, and I had a really good yarn with him in his, in his studio um, arrangement, uh, gym arrangement. And I say cornerstone because he he's, he's built. He's, uh, he's into fitness and health. Um, and he's a delightful bloke and he's so into, he's not just a fitness guy, he just goes, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, work out and tell people what to, you know, how they work, might work out. He's all about individual health and well-being, and also the connection of food with their health and where that food's come from. So really good yarn with Aaron McKenzie and I hope you're look, looking forward to that one as much as I am next week. This podcast is produced by Reese Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.